Welcome to the Zulu Time podcast, a straight talking conversation between two watch enthusiasts about the world of military watches. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to episode 76 of the Zulu Time podcast with your Dan uh, with your host Dan from Timely Underscore Moments. That is the only time I've ever messed that up in 76 episodes. So there you go. Right, guys, I hope you enjoyed last week's episode or last episode. Uh, I say last week's because I'm now recording exactly the week after. Um, but um, I hope you enjoyed everything about effectively Japanese watchmaking part two, where we concluded that like mini micro series with AJ and Dev, where we're talking about all things uh, spring drive, quartz and solar. Um, I hope you learned something. I definitely learned something. You know, it's pretty cool. Uh, and you should definitely go give some courts some love because, you know, at the end of the day, we don't as give it as much attention, I believe, in the watch fam as we probably should. And, you know, it's a natural progression of accuracy and um, obviously watchmaking technology. Um, so today's episode, guys, is another interview. Um, I've managed to coerce um, a gentleman to come on to the podcast for his first, I believe it's his first podcast ever. Uh, and we can confirm that when he comes on. However, I met him a couple of weeks ago um, at the time of recording um, at the Oxford Red Bar event. OK, so effectively I met him there got to talking about his business because he is a vintage watch dealer and particularly certain watches that he has got and he's done some really cool research on some of them and I just thought you know what you're an interesting bloke I like your watches and that was a really interesting story you're coming onto the podcast he kind of got strong-armed into it but anyway Bill welcome to the podcast thank you for coming on and it is your first podcast isn't it ever yes it is yeah Yep, absolutely. My first podcast. Um, so, you know, hopefully it goes well. I'm uh, sure it will. I'm sure <laughs> it will. It's really easy. At the end of the day, we're just going to have a chat and they're going to learn everything, you know, about uh, yourself and, and your business, which is, you know, obviously what we're here to to discuss, which is really good. Um, but before we get into it, Bill, there is yeah. like two traditions on my podcast, which are the same traditions as all watch podcasts, because we all follow the same format, whether you're talking to me or Hodinki. And that is, what watch do you have on your wrist? So I have a little bit of a Marmite watch on my wrist today. Okay. Um, it is a Cartier Chronoscape 21. Um, that is a funky looking watch. Yes, um, incredibly unusual for Cartier. Mm. Um, so it's a nice stainless steel diver's watch with mm -hmm. the uh, with a classic Roman numeral bezel, as you mm -hmm. traditionally have on a diver's watch. Of course. And um, yeah, rubber and stainless steel strap. Nice, nice. Is that a quartz or is that a? Yes, uh, it is. It is a quartz. It is a quartz chronograph movement. Yes. Okay, cool. Uh, I thought so from the layout of the subdials. I think I've got a similar quartz chronograph movement in one of my watches actually. Uh, just going off the spacing. Um, that's yes, nerdy well, as shit, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, it's um, yes, yeah, it's, it's the same 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 meta movement that's used in the um in the moon swatch as well. <laughs> So, oh, okay. so it's more relevant nowadays <laughs> it is more relevant and as we know you know uh amiga Sw uh, and swatch like to keep the relevancy of the moon swatch uh by releasing a new version every month under a different color or type of moon that i didn't know existed or cared about um, yeah uh, well i'm absolutely in no way endorsed by uh by swatch or omega I mean, I wish I, out of the two, I think if I could be endorsed by one of them, it would be Amiga. And if I was to be endorsed by Amiga, I know that the watch that I'd want to wear isn't a moon swatch. So, you know, I'm just going to throw that one out there. Um, yes. Um, so the watch on my wrist isn't an Amiga. Um, this has been on my wrist like a solid week, which is unheard of for me because I normally change my watches every day because I can um, but I've still got my Seiko 5 55th anniversary watch on, which I collected, I said, a week ago. Um, and it's fantastic. Um, so, yeah, there you go. I've got a like I've got the same watch on for two concurrent episodes of the Zulu Time podcast. Uh, that's just his testament to how cool it is. Um, but, yeah, so if anyone hasn't seen it, um, go check it out. It's basically a carbon copy reissue of the first ever um, Seiko 5 made in 1968 so yeah it's pretty cool yeah it looks very good 
looks yeah. incredibly good and you know exactly the same as the original essentially yeah um, uh, which... and without without the hassle of it being a vintage watch and we spoke about that at red bar didn't we it was the fact that the great thing about vintage watches is that they've got an alert to them and they're really cool but sometimes it's just ever so slight you have to be slightly more careful with them i think in certain situations compared to a modern watch Yes, absolutely. I said it's it's always traditionally been seen as a minefield. Um, mm. but that's that's something something good dealers and you know I myself not saying I'm the best dealer in the world, but um, in regards to helping people as much as I possibly can, that's that's what I strive to do, mm-hmm. um, and that's that's important to kind of um, get people into vintage more and more and show them that it's not a scary thing. Mm-hmm. yeah exactly and especially like so with p- people like yourself with the internet with forums you know there are information out there and we're gonna obviously move on to that uh later on to the episode when we actually talk about your business but bill before we talk about bold timepieces let's talk a little bit about yourself and what actually got you personally into watches yeah so it's um i think it was a it was a it was a real just heart moment i was um I was I stumbled upon one of my grandfather's pocket watches, um, you know, going through the house when I when I was caring for him and just tidying some things up essentially, and um, it was a it was a Waltham Traveller pocket watch, classic seven jewel pocket watch from the eighteen nineties, mm-hmm. and oh, cool. um, I just looked at it and I thought this is absolutely amazing, um, and you know the the, the mechanics of it were were mm-hmm. also impressive to me as i'm sure they are to anyone when they first lay eyes on 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 such a thing um and i started asking him about it and it was it was it was something he'd he'd wore, he'd used for a long time mm-hmm. um he bought it in the 1940s um just in a second hand market in red ruth in cornwall and um yeah it had stayed with him all that time um and that was the moment when i laid eyes on that that led me led me down the path to start enjoying the uh, micro engineering that are well watches pocket watches mm-hmm. and the like. That's really cool. You are the first person I think to start their watch journey that I've interviewed, to my knowledge, without going back through the episodes. And obviously, guys, correct me if I'm wrong, and I've got my own history and my podcast wrong. But I'm sure you're the only person I've interviewed who started their watch like obsession or addiction or affliction depending on how you look at it um through pocket watches um i know personally that i came through pocket the pocket watch stage slightly after the the actual wristwatch stage so i think that's really cool but actually the benefit is when you unscrew the back of a uh, pocket watch the movements are bigger so you can see more you know and i and i'm a bit like yourself like i like looking at movements it's really weird i just think it's fascinating that we can make something effectively that small that does what it does and it looks really cool while doing it so i can see why you got into it yeah absolutely i said that was that was the main allure for me um i said i think we all go through the pocket watch stage at one point or another um but obviously the the usefulness of them is incredibly limited nowadays um in comparison with the convenience of having a wristwatch which was Mm. obviously why they phased out naturally yeah, exactly. And I think the thing is, I think a pocket watch now, the place where you tend to see them is at very pretentious like gatherings where someone has a waistcoat and they can put them in a pocket, you know, and they can be pretentious and pull them out a little bit. You know, I know a few guys um, from the military, you know, obviously my military career, when they promoted into the sergeants and warrant officers messes that they went and bought pocket watches because they wanted to have the ability to do that and pull it out of their waistcoats. So I think it's quite funny that that minor nod to tradition is still there even if it's in a bit of a more banterous and slightly uh humorous way absolutely yeah you yeah. know um but from pocket watches then obviously you started clearly started collecting normal watches and you know uh, and amassed what i'm guessing is um you know your own collection um what was your first wristwatch then when after you kind of caught the bug oh um yeah that was that was a that was actually a rotary um <laughs> you know rotary nowadays fashion watches but it was just a nice clean chronograph with a panda dial and mm. a nice tachometer register around the outside so actually my my eye was immediately drawn to something that was a bit more technically involved and mm-hmm. a bit less fashion 
um, mm-hmm. but all the while the same price point and a quartz movement. Yeah. Um, so really, that was that was my first first purchase in terms of a wristwatch. Um, and then I think it progressed along the Seiko route, mm-hmm. um, as as I know it does for many collectors. Yeah. <laughs> um, but the the first time I actually moved towards vintage, or shall we say at this point in time, neo-vintage, um, was with the Seiko Monster Divers Watch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, yeah. Um, the generation one with the with the green and the orange um, mm-hmm. dial variations, um, and I just thought that was such a cool watch. Um, so so kind of aggressive, but also beautiful in terms of its design, and mm-hmm. also the functionality of it being a diver was was yeah. amazing too. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was that was the first step then on from rotary towards towards Seiko, and then then on to vintage really. That's really cool. That. Um, I have never owned a modern circuit dive watch, ever. Um, but I I do know that the monster, especially the Generation Ones, have got a particular cult following, don't they? In terms of collectability and like people are after them now. And I think it's quite cool that certain models within the massive sphere that is like Seiko have such a cult following. Um, you know, I think they're they're quite cool. There was a good video a few about mm, probably six months ago I think maybe a little bit longer and it was um an interview with like this bloke in Thailand who happened to be like one of the largest Seiko collectors in the world but I think he's got like one of the largest Seiko monster collections privately owned like yeah that's, yeah well, that, it's that, impressive. That, that takes some doing as well considering the amount of different variations they did a particular yeah. favorite of mine was the was the dracula which is mm. a kind of kind of um white arrow markers with red tips on the end mm-hmm. um, so slightly I, vampire-esque <laughs> yeah i can see why i get and also that's the other thing i like about the monster is the fact that or Seiko watches in general, is the nicknames that they get. I think they're really cool. You know, like I said, for the overall model or the particular variant of the models, I think it's quite it's quite descriptive, isn't it? Um, but yeah, I'm sure the bloke had, it was a disgusting amount of watches in that interview. And it was just like piles and piles of like watch boxes just full of monsters. And I'm sure there is uh, avid Seiko aficionados out there, either listening or not listening, um, who would kill to have just a percentage of his collection um, because it was impressive. Um, so, yeah. Um, in terms of your watches then, so this is probably going to drop you, uh, not drop you in it, but this is probably going to be quite an off-the-cuff comment or, or question, but did you have you kept all of your watches in your collection or because you're, you know, like I said, because you are a dealer, do you find that your own collection has changed rapidly over time depending on what you get in and what you see and the trends as well or do you have a pretty steady collection yourself where you kind of go well that is actually my collection these are the pieces that I really like for x y and z or is it very much a case you get pieces in and kind of go nah and I'm going to move something else on yeah that's a really good question to be fair um I think the first thing I'd say is I actually wish I kept more of the original watches I had. So that, mm-hmm. that answers it straight away that I yeah. do not have most of them. Um, I said to to get something like a Seiko Monster now, it's kind of, I've came full circle back to those mm-hmm. watches that originally got me into it. Maybe yeah. not the, maybe not the rotary. Uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe <laughs> but not. the, uh, but yeah, Seiko Monster would, would, would be nice to have again. Um, so yeah, it would be, would be nice if I had the kind of watches like that mm-hmm. that kept, that started the whole ball rolling. Mm. Um, but I think with the nature of just funding new watches in a collection, as we all find, something normally needs to move out before something else comes in. Um, yeah. and that, that was the case for a long time until I was able to, about five years ago, start to uh, have select watches that I mm-hmm. said, you know, this is this is mine, mm-hmm. um, and and it's staying that way, and hopefully then I can be the the custodian of of such a lovely watch until the next generation has it. Mm-hmm. Um, no. I'm quite a romantic in that manner as well when it comes to looking after and being a guardian of mechanical yeah. timepieces. Yeah. Um, but one watch in particular that, that really started that was on my 21st birthday. I, I'd i been obsessed with Art Deco period wristwatches, mm-hmm. rectangular watches, tank watches for, yeah, for, for a good three years or so, um, with a particular focus on American market wristwatches by yep. Elgin, Bulliver, Hamilton, mm-hmm. etc. All the good stuff. Um, and yeah, I managed to find a really nice, large nine carat gold tank watch um 
to our rectangular watch mm-hmm. um, with the most beautiful dial, kind of a diamond crosshatch effect on it um, and large exaggerated numerals. Um, and that's something that, that many people who know me, they know I wear that when I, when I go out <laughs> on special occasions. That mm-hmm. is the watch that I wore for my university graduation. And that will continue to be the watch that I wear for any special occasion going forwards as well. Nice. So, nice. yes, there's there's certainly certainly some ones that have stuck in there. Um, other watches come and go, uh, dependent on purpose, really. Mm-hmm. Um I think considering I'm a dealer in vintage watches, my, my personal collection is actually relatively restricted. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone was to have a guess, you'd normally go, oh, you're, you're, you're a dealer, you probably have oh, upwards of 50 watches, say, in a mm-hmm. personal collection. I have 10, <laughs> including mm-hmm. pocket watches. Um, I think it's seven wrist watches, three pocket watches. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I try and try and keep that nice and tame, but that's where the dealing aspect helps because I get to experience yeah. a number of watches um, without actually integrating them fully into a collection. Yeah. Do you ever get pieces in and then struggle to integrate them out the, of the collection, as it were, and you kind of go, yeah, actually, this is just going to be for me? <laughs> yeah, I think once I've had something on the wrist for over a week straight, um, yeah. or I go to put it on most days because quite often I'll switch watches. But if it keeps drawing me back for about a week's time, then... And uh, yeah, it's going to have to go into the personal collection for for a couple of months at least. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, I I couldn't do that uh, mainly because I'm at the limit at the moment on what I can store in my watch boxes. So I've started to get to the point where I'm like looking to move some bits uh, bits out. Obviously, a bit like yourself, I've got certain watches that will never go. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. I think to be in a position where you can try watches uh, or handle watches, even if it's just you know, a very short amount of time. I think it's great because it informs you, doesn't it? It's another way of informing you of what you might like, what you might not like, you know, and to throw it back to the Red Bar Me, that was my first Red Bar Me ever. Um, but what I thought was really nice was the fact that everyone was adult enough and respectful enough of all the watches that would have been brought um, other than just, you know, those by the company that was the guest host. Um, but it was cool to have the experience of like, you know, picking up a GMT, for example, like, you know, a vintage one that I'd never done that before, you know, um, or, you know, through to some of the fairers that, you know, the other gen- one of the gentlemen had brought along. And it's quite cool to have that exposure, isn't it, physically with watches, especially if you're looking at, you know, expanding your collection, you know, and I think that's always a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the one of the fundamental aspects that makes events like Red Bar so <clears throat> important um, is they are just you know a completely free zone where you can essentially just play around with things Mm -hmm. um and you know try watches that you would never normally put on the wrist and yeah Mm -hmm. but part of you might might enjoy that as well um yeah and yeah it really does help to inform you and um also to meet like-minded people um i think that's the most important thing um Mm -hmm. because sometimes the the hobby can be quite um kind of insular when you're mm. operating online you know yeah. you know names you know you you know you know what you deal with people mm-hmm. um but to actually put names to faces that's the number one yeah. thing that i think is most important um and something that is sometimes forgotten in in the hobby yeah no i agree with you and it was funny actually because talk about putting names to faces there were some people there who i'd obviously met before and hadn't, hadn't seen for years but there's also some people who i'd never met but i knew them through their handle you know and it was like I said, nice to put a name to a face and you can kind of obviously in person, you pick up more of their personality when you speak to engage with them and then you start to realise why they post the way that they post or why they engage with the way you, with certain watches or certain, you know, um, companies and posts and photos. And I think it's really good to see that come out at an event like that, you know, and uh, I, was, I was a big fan. Like I said, uh, hopefully I'll come to many more uh, Red Bar events in the future, you know, and that's the plan. Um, yeah, well, fingers crossed. I'll try and yeah. uh, try and coerce you over to Bristol as well at some point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said, it's not in the you know in the grand scheme of things, it's not a, a very very far at all. Um, where I used to be posted, in fact, the Bristol one uh, would have been closer um, to where I am now. So you know, I'm actually. It's, I said this to Sam, who's obviously a member of the Red Bar Southeast. I've been a member of Red Bar Southeast the Oxford one when it came up and then I think I'm actually on the mailing list for the Bristol Red Bar 
but through COVID and through my job, you know, and going away constantly or just being busy when there's been events on, I've actually never gotten around to an event until, like I said, a couple of weeks ago. And I think that's ridiculous. Um, but I will endeavour to uh, tip up to as many as I can, um, like I said, going forward. And I think they were great. Um, in terms now of, obviously, that's your personal kind of route into watches. You went from pocket watches and then you obviously started, you know, creating your own um, collection at what point Bill, did you think actually you know what I'm going to effectively throw down on this and I'm going to start a business you know yeah I think um there was there was no there, there, there was a singular lightning bulb moment mm-hmm. when I looked around at my office and my desk and there were watches as far as the eye could see on the desk mm-hmm. and I'd been buying and selling for a couple of years and I thought yeah, I think I should probably go from being known as the the person who has a lot of watches to to trying to be the person to go to for watches as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that that was that was around around the time that I was um, studying my business degree at the University of the West of England as well. Um, yeah. So the two went hand in hand really, and that kind of helped shape it and, and mm-hmm. organize the way in which which I operated. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it was that natural evolution from hobby and collector buying and selling to fund a new watch, to realizing some watches could potentially be quite quite profitable um, mm-hmm. if 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 you knew the right things and the right information or the right people to repair them, um, and yeah, so the the vehicle for kind of increasing my knowledge and my collection then also turned into the business. Yeah, yeah. So was it like I said? So so you obviously put it into a time frame then how long has bold timepiece has been around for yes we've been around uh full time for three years now Mm -hmm. and a year before that i was doing it part-time uh during the placement year of my degree as well um so yeah that was that was the real time when i sort of said right let's 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 go for this yeah so did you again like i said not to pry too much about it but obviously you basically you looked around the room you had loads of watches went right I'm doing business yeah. degree. Let's have a go. But did you amass your knowledge and go, right, actually, I'm just going to start with X of watches that were on the table? Or was it very much a case where you went a little bit more business minded and went, right, if I've got this much capital, I need to invest in X amount of kinds of watches because I've seen a trend. You know, was, was it like a little bit more scientific or was it very much a case of, well, I, I'm studying business. I can have a go at this part time and I've got some effectively i've got some stock on my table i'm just going to give it a go with what's on here and see what happens or like i said did you look at market trends as it were and Mm -hmm. you know stuff that you'd already gathered from collecting watches and being around it for you know a period of time before you sell yeah i think um i think it was very much a heart thing well it was it was a it was a practicality thing in Mm -hmm. terms of the watches i had to begin with yeah to help with capital and then it was just it was the collector in me and it was the heart that mm-hmm. led me to continue to deal with watches of a certain type and mm-hmm. um, watches that appealed to me as well, because I, I can sometimes find it difficult if a watch isn't something I personally love to actually mm-hmm. communicate all of the beauty of it. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I tend to be quite loyal to certain watches in that way. I'd say mm-hmm. I certainly, although I started with divers watches, I favor dress watches as well. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing as well is I have, no loyalty to specific brands i think some people will only deal in rolex or yeah. amiga um yeah. or seiko's um but if something pulls on my heartstrings and i love it and i can communicate it's it's joy um then that's a watch i'm going to sell um yeah. and it doesn't matter what era that's from either i'll have you know small desk clocks mm-hmm. or, hybrid pocket watches and things like that travel watches from the early 1900s um up to neo-vintage watches as well um Mm -hmm. it really is anything (laughs) yeah i think that's quite cool really you know i said that's obviously when we spoke obviously you'd had some you brought along a load of watches for people to have a look at anyway uh and it was like you said it was the range of watches that you had there and the fact that you were invested in all of them where you could actually talk to me about them which is always good you know and that's you know, something which I find quite infectious is obviously when you speak to someone who's just as passionate about the same thing or similar things, because that's at the end of the day, I would say it's similar things and the same because you saw the watches that I bought to Red Bar, they were very different to what you had um, at your, you know, at your table. Um, but it's interesting that you say that you 
effectively sell what you like because it's very much if you I don't know if you managed to speak to Don personally when we were at the Red Bar event but the story behind the MP45 did you know about that which is quite interesting um no I didn't know so the MP45 stands for Mono Pusher 45 obviously it's Mono Pusher watch and they came into service in 1945 um Don, forgive me. I'm giving the I'm, I'm saying the pertinent points of this, but effectively, what happened was the contract to the military to make those mono pusher chronographs went out to Vertex and Lamania because we know that the Lamania ones existed from 1940 end of the war. Yeah. Um. But the Vertex ones never came into fruition because it was down to rationing and the amount of um effectively an embargo on how many watch movements could be exported from switzerland at any one time so the vertex ones even though the plans and designs and blueprints were ready to go they couldn't get hold of the movements and then obviously the war ended when it ended and vertex went well we need to switch fire because we need to continue being a business you know making these watches for a war that doesn't exist anymore or isn't conducive you know financially viable we're going to switch to civilian pieces and that's what they did that's why they never made it but when you speak to Don about it, he goes, well, it was a watch that was never made, but I have all the, you know, the paperwork and all the proof that we were going to make it. And I like Mono Pusher Chronographs and I wanted to make it. So if I want to make it, I own the business, I'm going to sell it and I'm going to tell its story. I think it's quite interesting that, you know, a bloke who owns and designs his own watches, as it were, to and a gentleman like yourself who deals in vintage watches is the same mindset, just with a different thing. And I think that's fantastic, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I d- definitely see the parallels there. <laughs> yeah, you know, but I think it's like I just think it's really cool the fact that you know, like I said, people can get passionate about different things, and actually, the key to this is you're only going to be good at effectively selling an item or you know, selling a story behind it if you are invested in it in yourself. You know, um, which I think is always interesting. Um, in terms of watches that have come through bold timepieces, then there was a particular watch that I found really interesting. But like you said, you've kind of specialised in vintage watches, um, dress watches, and like you said, 19th, from like the 1930s through the war, and then obviously your neo vintage. Um, before we get onto the one that obviously enamoured me, uh, yeah. and I thought was very, very interesting because of my background, and obviously, and I thought was really interesting for my audience and podcast because a lot of people come to this podcast to listen to like military watches and tour watches and that kind of stuff. You know, is there any other watches that stand out that have come through ball time pieces? I mean, there was a particular interesting pocket watch that we will probably talk about loosely um, that you brought over, which is quite divisive. Um, However, it's interesting because it's still a piece of history. So I can understand why it's divisive, but I can also understand why people would want to collect it, you know, yeah, I, I I think I think that one. Yeah, we'll we'll come on to yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. Um, but no, I, I think I think otherwise. Um, it's it's just trying to find you know good examples of interesting watches. <clears throat> the watch we're also going to come on to is is a watch that flies a little bit under the radar. Um, <clears throat> I think that's 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 the aspect I enjoy. So anything <clears throat> that is not of the norm. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I I have some things that I hold to one side and I don't mm-hmm. necessarily want to bring to the market, mm-hmm. probably because of the collector in me as well. Yeah. Um, but because I realize the beauty and the scarcity of certain pieces. Um, if I wasn't to have had the um the technical hitches that I had last week mm-hmm. <laughs> and we were record we were recording on on the Friday, um, then I would have had an amazing watch on not saying this chronoscape isn't um but it was a 1951 universal geneve um potentially unique a unique reference um of an 18 carat pink gold dress watch nice. um and it was something with kind of pyramid style lug design a really okay. unusual yeah. dial um so yes yeah, it's, it's things like that really that i'd say are the things that stand out mm-hmm. for me um, yeah. Just watches that you will not see every day, um, yeah. and it doesn't matter whether they're that Universal Geneve or whether they're something military and a bit more unknown. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just design and quality for me. Yeah, and in terms of the watches, um, obviously now on a business point. Before we get onto the interesting stories, obviously, do you have you clearly have contacts to have them serviced and looked at before you obviously sell them? Obviously, if people would come to you, I assume that 
uh, services extended to them because that's the other drama that a lot of people don't understand when it comes to vintage watches it necessarily is the fact that they think that getting them services is a drama because obviously it's finding people who are I don't know are adept at certain movements or you know certain areas of watches you know I found that quite difficult when I've come to service a couple of vintage uh World War II pieces and some people will outright refuse to touch them because I don't know a good example being radium on the hands you know they just don't want to touch it you know yet Mm. the actual movement itself is probably fairly on you know the I'm doing inverted quotes here guys simple because it's a small um hand wound mechanical movement which you know in terms of movements as movements go despite the fact that it's really 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 small is probably one of the more simpler movements to physically service and take apart and put them back together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, uh, you know, I don't want to throw watchmakers on the no. bus too much, um, but there, there is easier to deal with newer movements um, mm-hmm. and to deal with the same movements where you've got reliable parts supply supplies. Yeah. So, you know, that's, that's a, an easy way to, to get through more watches and, and to earn more money, which is mm-hmm. perfectly understandable. Um, mm-hmm. But I think with vintage watches, it's a case of finding real artisans, um, people that do it for the love of the wristwatches mm-hmm. and the conservation of these of these timepieces, um, and the, the you know the kind of sentimental attachment and the stories that come with them too, um, and that's something that you know I don't think I don't think money can make up for no. um, being able to to cherish those timepieces. Um, but yes, I, I said uh, I'll, I'll gladly say the main the main um, people I use for my servicing are um, a group, an amazing group of watchmakers, a mm-hmm. uh, horological underground in in Bristol, yeah. um, and the the head watchmaker there, German Pelosin, he's a Russian watchmaker, um, and he also has his own project, which is mm-hmm. the Kopft Skull Watch as well. Um, which I'm sure some people may have seen recently on on Watchfinder. They featured mm-hmm. a video on it saying, "Is this the coolest watch in the world?" Um, <laughs> um, which, yeah, I'm 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 a bit biased, but I I, I think it may well be. Um, but yeah, in in terms of those guys, um, and also another gentleman I use in in Canterbury, James James Roberts. Um, mm-hmm. Those are reliable people. That, as I said they will do their utmost to try and save something regardless mm-hmm. of it being you know uneconomical for them and maybe even potentially for me um mm-hmm. but that's 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 the important aspect mm-hmm. yeah um, no i think it's i think it's good that you've got like that support and you know the fact that there are people like that you know mainly because i found it difficult in the past where i've had to you know uh so it, it could like side note story like years ago my dad gifted me his amiga right when I was 23 he gave it to me it was a broken watch so it'd been flooded because he fell into a swimming pool in Hong Kong when he was posted out there and what did he do he dried it out and left it for years never wore it again because funny enough he had a Casio and digital watches were a thing because he was posted out in out in out in Hong Kong and you know that was like the rage right um he gifted me when he realized that this watch collecting thing wasn't just a fad um but it took me ages to find someone to, to service it you know and i initially because i didn't know any better i emailed uk amiga and went please sort out my dad's watch and effectively they quoted me for a whole brand new watch right you know but it took me two 18 months to two years to find someone who was i felt was competent enough to sort out my dad's watch and, yeah, absolutely. you know main and maintain you know the physical watch enough to say that it was still my dad's you know what mm. I mean? And it was still the same watch. You well, know? I, th- I think that's an aspect that's difficult and that's why it can sometimes mm. be a minefield. Yeah. Um, you know, you take a watch to a brand. Um, yep. they, they don't, for the same reasons I said, the ease of servicing as well. Yep. They don't they don't want to deal with it. No. Um, so they're going to charge you an extortionate amount of money for something mm-hmm. uh, that should not cost that much. Um, and they are also going to replace as many parts as possible yep. if they're worn. Um, yep. Which, obviously, if a dial's got a bit of aging on it, you don't necessarily want a refinished dial. You don't yep. want an original crown replaced just because the thread's a bit worn. Um all those sorts of things you 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 want to maintain. So yeah, it's yeah. important to be able to walk people through that process. So that's something, yeah, we we offer as well. And that's that's the benefit of the the experience I've yeah. gained through using different watchmakers mm-hmm. and, and trying my best to conserve serve these watches as well. Um yeah. so I I recently someone was 
very pleasantly surprised by the fact that I was able to get them their Rolex Submariner sorted and keep all of the originality. And, um, you know, it was done in a month's time as well. Um, yeah. So, Lovely. yeah, that's, that's, that's yeah, it's something I'm... I so said you've you've got to be careful because you don't want to uh, overload watchmakers. There's only a no, certain of number of them, um, yeah. which is the other issue. Um, many watchmakers are unfortunately a dying breed, um, yeah. and it's important for there to be new blood coming in as well. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree. Um, but like I said, it's important to have that walkthrough as well. And like I said, if you can maintain someone's watch to that level, you know, it said, and as you said earlier, you know, to be effectively a custodian of something and keep it as original as possible for the next generation to enjoy or another uh, collector or, you know, uh, watch person to enjoy. I think that's fantastic. Um, let's talk about the really cool watch that you showed me. So I think it's really cool. Um, guys, and Bill's going to tell you the story, but effectively, uh, Bill had a really cool Air Ministry watch um, when I met him in um, at the Red Bar event. Um, and effectively, it was a repurposed watch that used to sit in cameras within the wings of Stingray torpedo bombers uh, and was turned into a watch after the war. So, Bill, I've butchered that, but, you know, how did you come across that watch and what made you effectively do the research that you did to figure it all out? Because I've never seen one before and I've got like the British military timepiece books by Conrad Nirim and all that kind of stuff. And I've seen one in the photo, but I've never seen one in real life. Yeah. Um, I mean, it was, it was, it was almost accidental really. I mean, I, I, I picked, I picked one up because, you know, obviously I recognized the broad arrow and the air ministry marks AM and thought, great that's an interesting watch but I said when it came to just doing a simple google search um with the specific reference code absolutely nothing came up um and through some ridiculous stroke of luck considering the apparent scarcity of of these watches um which is probably also in part due to the lack of knowledge of them so people can't identify them when they do get them easily mm-hmm. um yeah, I found another, um, and um, it just went. It went from there, really. I, 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 I thought it would be great to just talk about the watch more, um, mm-hmm. the model, and trying to uncover all the secrets behind it. Um, mm-hmm. Which was which was a, a long process. Uh, a lot of resources were were mm-hmm. involved. Um, but yeah, in the end, I was able to to uncover the story. So the reference is the 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 fourteen A um dash 1102 um mm-hmm. as i said our ministry watches will be immediately apparent to to your listeners with the six b's etc and all those fantastic yeah. watches and this watch is very similar to that in terms of in terms of proportions in terms of the use of wire lugs in terms of an incredibly clear dial and a central second yeah. um yeah it was just the purpose of this one that made it so utterly utterly unique um and yeah obviously they 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 were used inside of a box on the camera recording on the wing of torpedo bombers um which is 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 crazy to me to think to really think through the process of the watch yeah. being used within that um yeah. i mean in in reality what happened was the the watch was held within a frame yep and with a light and a mirror it was shone onto the film um, which then provided your consistent time stamping um, for for events mm-hmm. um, when flying. Um, so yeah, there's there's still there's pictures. All, all all of the pictures you see from from those in the era, they will have this little circular watch face in the corner, and that's these wristwatches. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were they were produced by numerous brands. Um, I think it was something like fifteen or so, but yep. it's not not even completely certain because there were so many small Swiss mm-hmm. makers just throwing watches in for these purposes. And this one, in fact, isn't even branded. Um, mm-hmm. It's just the movement that is a is a FHF caliber, um, which was which was also the same as my other example, which was a another aspect which was unusual um and the serial numbers weren't weren't too far different either um mm. so i feel like that was kind of meant to be to be honest yeah yeah <laughs> yeah i think it's really cool like you said it's the fact that these things we use for a purpose and the fact that there's a story behind it you know that the, the ground crews of those aircraft you know back in the day when they were prepping the cameras and putting the film in and all of that kind of stuff 
and obviously arming those torpedo bombers and maybe like you said other aircraft that had the same camera systems in you know it's the fact that some bloke would have had to have wound that and put it back into the mount and sealed it all up before that aircraft went off to do what it did i think for me it's just a really cool story you know and i'm not saying that every aircraft you know of those types definitely had a you know you know a camera watch in them effectively um but we can probably obviously highly assume that the majority of them did you know because of the amount of watches that were being like you said pushed into the war effort but not many torpedo bombers survived the war you know (laughs) to be honest no um, it was it was actually the um the f-46 camera um that went with it which is another yeah. interesting aspect um mm-hmm. because what you can try and do and trust me i've been trying but it's not easy as you say <laughs> not many of the planes left no. there were slightly more of the camera boxes left um yeah. and the cameras themselves but yes you can pair the watch with the camera as well um yeah. which i i just think is so so utterly charming and and unusual mm-hmm. um especially with it still perfectly resembling a wristwatch yeah as i said i have it have it here to hand it's you know about 30 millimeters in size mm-hmm. um a nice chapter ring around the outside for the for the um the second gra- the five second graduations and fifths mm-hmm. of a second um fairly basic non-luminous hands yeah. central second wire lugs yeah um it's a perfectly rareable wristwatch by today's mm-hmm. standards um, but as I said, it's just completely perverse that it wasn't actually ever meant to be a wristwatch. It was just yeah. mounted on form. a mounted on a <laughs> on a mount inside a camera, which I think is uh, pretty cool. Um, what you, you know, what I was about to say. So funny story for you, or, or another story. I'm going to have to speak to someone in work because um, in RAF Cosford there is the Museum of Military Photography. Yeah. And inside there is a load of cameras. So I'm going to have to speak to a contact of mine just to open up that room, just to have a look and see if there is um, the, what did you say, F-86 camera? Uh, F-46. F-46. Yeah. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll just find out. I'll see if there is an F-46 camera uh, in there. Uh, and I'll add it into the show notes, guys. I'll go and take a photo if there is one. Um, but yeah, for me, like for me, like I said, that's, you know, just a connection back to my own career. Like I, I started obviously in, in, in imagery intelligence and stuff like that. And all right, that's, and I said, time stamping for torpedo bombers. But, you know, I can imagine that those cameras and those systems were used in, like I said, other aircraft as well and to give you that timestamp. Um, but no, I think it's just a really cool story. Um, the You wrote an article about it as well, didn't you? Yes, I did. Yeah, I said that's 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 on the website on bold time pieces. You know, mm-hmm. when when something piques my interest to that extent, I will mm-hmm. occasionally occasionally right, put man. out a bit of writing on it. Um, but yeah, that's 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 there in full detail for for everyone to be able to read. Um, yeah. gives the full rundown rather than my my rough mutterings. Yeah, on it. yeah. Um, I will uh I will tag it into the show notes for everyone to go and read um i will also go and read it again because i just found it very interesting very interesting um there was another watch there that you had which again is a little bit more polarizing mainly because of which service it falls under and we had an interesting conversation about should these not should these things exist because obviously they do exist but like obviously you know is there you know effectively is there a collection you know collector's market for them and like you know people get sh- not offended, but they get a little bit wide-eyed, don't they, when they see something like that. Um, but you had a German military pocket watch as well. Yes, yes, it was. Um, it was a Kriegsmarine issue, mm-hmm. um, a Langer deck watch, uh, mm-hmm. deck observational watch. Um, I think it was from. It dated to nineteen forty-four. Um, but yeah, as I said, it's something that obviously it's quite hard to ignore. I mean, you've got the you've got the simple silver dial. It has two sub dials to the center yeah. one to the left one to the right on the left you've got the power reserve on the right you've got the constant running seconds and then hours and minutes mm-hmm. um so that's nice and sterile and clearly designed as you'd anticipate for something that needs to be used mm-hmm. for accurate timekeeping and then on the rear you obviously have the massive um eagle and swastika insignia mm-hmm. um yeah. with with uh, the the various signing then inside the a langer signing and the work number and serial number etc um but yeah i said that's that's the thing with a lot of these pieces probably with something that's a creek creeks marine issue wristwatch 
a bit easier to ignore when it's just km um, yes. but when something has a full insignia different story um so yeah i was i was wary of bringing that to a to a collector's meet and mm. um just 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 due to the nature of the sensitivity of it um yeah. but i think as someone who also deals in 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 antiquities um i think i have a a fairly relaxed viewer around these these kinds of things um in terms of offering the items um because uh, i think in our discussion i kind of said to you you know what's what's the difference between that and a dirty dozen wristwatch exactly. um or an atp wristwatch that we were also enjoying talking about mm-hmm. our review 57s yes um yeah. <laughs> but yeah what what realistically what is the difference between them it's just the the side that they happen to be on if you take it for what it is which is absolutely fantastic engineering um, and a a functional incredibly accurate timepiece had a specific purpose um the only thing that's different is the side um And so, yeah, and uh, I mean, and also in terms of owning an A-Langer, um, yeah. I have not owned one otherwise, and I will probably struggle to due to yeah. the price point which they command. And these yeah. happen to be one that's a bit more widely available. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the only A-Langer I've ever handled. You know what I yeah. mean? And like you said, it's just one of those. It's, you know, guys, we talk about all these hot horology, you know, brands, you know, a lot of all the watch brands that we all love and enjoy at some point basically have had a military contract at some point in their in, in their in their you know in their uh, in their histories you know and like you said it just depends on what side that contract effectively fell on you know and there's been obviously guys we know that there's been loads of modern conflicts with the use of wristwatches and timing devices you know um and i think it adds to the history of the companies and i also think like you said at the end of the day the watch is a fantastic piece of engineering. It is a piece of history. And like you said, it's just got the markings for whichever side. Now, there's a difference, obviously, and we're not going to get into it because, you know, it's not my place to point about morality, but like there's a difference between understanding the history of it and having it for what it is. And then I guess effectively cohering to maybe the ideals of which that thing stood for or you know which that organization may or may not have stood for you know there's the difference isn't it you know and i would obviously tell people probably not to stand by those morals um because of what those are and i like to say i also agree with that (laughs) i like Um... a lot of people would say not to stand by you know the, the, the points of views obviously of what that overall organization did you know but at the end of the day those watches were used in no different way to what they said the dirty dozen the atps um the gear uh, the general service time pieces yeah, as well hs8 and, and hs8 and... you know all of those um and it's no different to the watches now that we use in the military they are used to time decision making and maneuvers on the battlefield you know um effectively be that tactical or strategic you know and i just like i said i it was a fantastic pocket watch to be able to have a look at. I certainly never knew that Lange, A. Lange actually made them for pocket watches for the Kriegsmarine. I've never seen one. Um, and like I said, am I ever likely to buy a modern A. Lange? No, doesn't really float in my boat, but I also haven't got that kind of exposable, uh, it is, um, expendable cash to drop onto a watch. Yeah. You know? um, but like I said, it was a fantastic piece of history, really, to have a look at. And like you said, what I think is funny, and you might be able to give me your opinion on this, but as a dealer now, do you find when it comes to people who may come to you to source watches, because obviously, you, you you know, clearly you also look at trends and obviously some people will probably come to you to source a watch. Yeah. Do you find that people gravitate when it comes to military watches of that era? Do they tend to gravitate towards the watches used by the Allies compared to the watches used by effectively the Axis forces? Even though oh, yeah. invariably the Axis forces watches are also effectively made in the same same factories, you know, yeah. some of them were. Uh, uh, well, absolutely. A lot of the Swiss brands produced, you know, general issue watches for mm-hmm. for for Germans as well, um, and whilst also providing ATPs to uh, to the British, um, which you know, I always always find a funny one. But they mm-hmm. truly were being impartial. Um, yep. But no, there's there's a there's a definite there's there's a yeah much higher interest in 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 Allied um, force wristwatches, um, mm-hmm. and you know that's that's understandable it's yep. it's it's the market we're into um yep. 
but yeah, I, I think there's there's still the stigma around them, which is why you know it's a topic I'll I'll talk to anyone about, yeah. and if anyone feels a different way as well or, or on on either side, then then I'm I'm happy to kind of raise raise that yeah. debate and just just discuss it because uh, I think it's important to talk about these things. Yeah. Um, yeah. As as well. Um, but no, I said yeah. Is it AT, ATPs? Um, those those are always popular. Um, yeah. I try to avoid dirty dozen wristwatches. Um, just because it's hard to find a good a good example, and they command yeah. so much money now for people looking to yeah. complete collections with specific um, yeah. branded ones. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I said a lot of the time you don't have original loom anymore. You might have you might have the MOD dials on mm-hmm. them. Um, there's so much that goes against them in terms of collectability and the the aspects that I enjoy offering timepieces that are mm-hmm. you know to to a to a high standard um yeah i i i, I enjoy dealing in the atps and mm-hmm. as i said I, I i saw your um review 57 when we were at the red bar meet and was yep. completely taken by that because i just happened to stumble across the same one the other day yep. um, I, I i think they're fantastic the atps um anyone again i'm not a dealer and i'm not about to steal your chips right but anyone who ever turns around to me and goes oh i'm looking at a watch from i would love to get a watch from world war ii i always tell people to look for an atp and firstly i get a the the, the, the first question i get back is a uh, what is an atp and then like the second bit is like for me i just think like you said they're just so cool because Fundamentally, the ATPs were in service longer during the war for a longer period, but also like they're more accessible, you know, even though I've seen them kind of, you know, slowly go up in price over the last few years that I've known about them, but I found them more accessible. I've had about three or four ATPs over, you know, over my my own collecting span and i just think they're really cool little watches you know absolutely um, um i think i think i think as long as you can get past the size and i don't think it's too difficult yeah. if they're on the original kind of canvas style strap mm-hmm. or the reproduction of it or on a bond clip they, yeah. they look fantastic on that too mm-hmm. i think when you've got that pairing um the size becomes kind of re- irrelevant and yeah you, you, you just enjoy the design of the watch it's incredibly legible um yes. and uh, and then you've obviously got the the individual little differences between different makers watches um yeah. which is the thing that makes it fun but you know you can you can look in auctions and you can mm-hmm. you can you can find them for potentially as little as 100 pounds depending mm-hmm. on condition yeah obviously there may be a bit more competition the more we talk about it um <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but, that's, but, the, but, the, but that's only natural um I, I, the, the, yeah they're a watch i absolutely love and being the entry level watch really for a british military issue wristwatch they're mm-hmm. always going to increase in value of course as I said from the last couple of years being yeah. maybe able to get the money ebay for 200 pounds mm-hmm. that's that's not something that occurs anymore no it doesn't <laughs> i was really lucky so I, i'll tell everyone the story behind my my vertex in fact i'll tell you the story behind the two two atps that i currently in my collection and i was really lucky and i picked them up at a vintage watch fair um which meets i think it's like once every third of the year um and it's the same place i just went for a wonder i'd like a free saturday and i just went for a wonder i took some watches that i wasn't particularly keen on in my collection at the time and the first one i managed to do a swap like i literally just went mate do you want to literally just do a watch for a watch and the bloke either didn't know what he had or he just had so many that he didn't care. And he's just like, yeah, whatever, that's fine. Um, and the first one I got was a little Seamer, which is the smallest case one. It's only 29 mil. But what I like about that... Um, small but mighty. Small but mighty, exactly. But <laughs> I think what's really cool about that one is, firstly, the condition of my one's really cool. So like, it's got like a creme brulee-esque kind of dial now. That's what I kind of call it. And that's why I nickname it, because it, it is it's patinaed in that way. Um but like the actual art like technology in terms of the actual movements if you look in um the comrade Niram's book where he's got big blown up photos of the watch movements is the SEMA is one of the only one of the few watches at the time that had a shock absorbing balance which i think is really cool you know and that's like modern watchmaking right there we still have that now um and then my review that i've got um, I got because obviously I am a big fan of Vertex. I'm a big fan of what Don does with the modern Vertex line and, you know, those watches. But I really wanted an original 
watch that you know original vertex as it were for want of better expression produced during the war but as you said earlier and we discussed just now the dirty doesn't watch it is command so much money and it's trying to find one in good condition and all that kind of stuff i just didn't want to hit the minefield myself and i like to think that i'm fairly knowledgeable when it comes to collecting watches as particularly in the military route for the amount of time that i've been in this hobby so i just decided to go for the atp not only because it was more affordable but also i found that actually it was easier to find one in good condition um and i don't know your thoughts on it i mean i know you have a review for 57 now but do you not just love the font on that dial oh yeah Yeah. it's 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 charming i said it's 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 aspects like that small details that make you really fall in love with individual design on time pieces exactly and you've got you've got a nice kind of flat top three Mm -hmm. on it um and considering it was meant, yeah, built to be a legible watch, there was no need to go fancy on the on the Arabic no. numerals like that. No, um, but yeah, not that's at just, all. and particularly with it being a sterile sterile mm-hmm. dial, um, yeah. it's fascinating because you you can just tell them apart from those mm-hmm. numerals, and yeah. that is the kind of fingerprint of those specific yeah. wristwatches. Yeah, and whereas whereas when you look at the Dirty mm-hmm. Dozen, because they'd come out with the defense standards for the watches. Funny enough, guys, that's why all 12 watches look exactly the same, because the dials were laid out by the Ministry of Defence, whereas the ATPs, there was no standardisation. They just, well, there was a standardisation, but it wasn't a standardisation in terms of the art history on the dial form of that expression. So that's why you've got Ebel watches with cathedral hands. That's why you've got Raycon Villiers with alpha hands. And I think those little nuances along the ATP line for me, make them more charming and more fun to collect because you can look at them and go, that one's different. Whereas if you got 12 Dirty Dozen watches, of which I know there was a few, uh, quite a few variants where they were sterile dialed, you could hold them next to each other and be like, they're all exactly the same. Yeah. For me, like I said, I think it's just the charm of the ATP. There is still some individuality, you know. Yeah, in it's, it, it, it's a charm. And, you know, they, they, were, they were a timepiece that was used significantly more as well mm-hmm. and produced in higher quantities. So that's yeah. always always something that helps. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, as I said, we, we, we could talk about them all day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, they are very cool. Very cool. And like I, I said, I, I would love to add a few more to my collection uh, in due course, just because I think they're fun. Um, I actually gifted one to uh, a really good friend of mine for his effectively leaving the army present. Um, so I gifted him a Timor on a bong clip. Um, and me and him actually started collecting watches together. We've got some very similar models all the way through our career together because we were qualified in similar jobs within the military so like he has his qualification version of the same watch you know model as i do but obviously with different styles and stuff to do with our particular career paths um but he was like oh, i'm leaving the military da, 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 da. and i was just like well, you know a few people got him some leaving gifts and i was just like you know what the only thing that i think he'd really appreciate is something like that um so we now effectively both have very similar atp watches in our collection and i think that's just nerdy i think it was a really cool thing for him to have um to kind of like like i said commemorate his time in the army um, absolutely it's, it's yeah. nerdy but at the same time it's 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 that continuation of a legacy with these watches as well yeah. and and the yeah. love of them you know that's someone who's going to cherish that yeah, um, yeah, yeah. as as you do yours um, yeah, exactly. that's 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 what makes it so so fun as well to collect in general yeah definitely i agree um bill we're not going to talk about military watches for the rest of the, of the evening as much as me and you would love to. I know that obviously people will uh, you know, rapidly turn off the rest of the podcast because they've heard me drone on about ATPs for years now, probably. Um, before we move on to closing notes and where people can find you on social media, is there anything else about bold timepieces that you feel that we've missed before we move on to how people can get in contact with you? Yeah, I think... Um... I think another thing I said with with me being such a romantic with certain mm-hmm. elements of watches, um, I have been I've I've been a long term lover of many small uh, watch brands within the UK, um, yeah. but particularly Fears Watch Company. Um, yeah. They are in Nicholas Bowman Scargill Fears, and the and the team he's assembled now they're back in Bristol as well. They are. They're just a fantastic group of people, and they're the, the watches they create. I absolutely adore, um, and that was also another gateway into wristwatches for me too. Um, to really 
crystallize my my love of specific watches and things that just mean something to me um so obviously being bristol based fears watch company were were a bristol brand mm-hmm. um that was yeah that was just beautiful for me to be able to discover that there's actually a brand operating back in bristol again well at yeah. the time they were in canterbury but in my yes. home city that were there from the 1840s up until the the 60s and obviously yep. they their their um premises on bristol bridge was was completely destroyed in the in the blitz in 1940 in bristol because mm-hmm. um, the whole castle park area of bristol was was badly damaged um and well yeah now a park because it was so badly damaged mm-hmm. um but yeah i so said that 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 love of fears watch company as well as yeah something and and the support i've also received from 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 nicholas of fears has been yep. has been something that i'm so grateful for and that's that's something that i think is so so important within the watch industry just how people genuinely care for yep. and look out for each other yep. um just based on a passion and love of of, of what we all do yeah yeah, I feel like there's still some etiquette within the watch industry collecting community still, which you may or may not get in other uh, hobbies, should we say. I can't confirm because I don't really do other hobbies other than rock climbing. Um, but I, I know what you mean. It's nice that there's a sense of community and, like you said, a little bit of etiquette and, you know, looking out for each other, um, even from a collecting point of view. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, yeah. Uh, Bill, where can people find you when it comes to bold timepieces where can people come and badger you about Krieg's marine pocket watches um torpedo bomber camera watches and atps and dress watches where can people find you yeah um so yeah bold boldtimepieces.co.uk is the main the main website and that as i said has articles on there as well um, and and kind of other stories behind watches um and also Instagram's the main place, really. Um, so I think the Clickton community is so active on Instagram. Yeah. All of us are glued to it all the time. But yeah, bold time pieces on Instagram. Um, and yeah, other than that, you can you can book to see me in Bristol if you want to want to drop by the showroom and see anything. Um, so yeah, relatively simple, really. Wonderful. I'll have to let you know next time down your way. I've got a few friends who live in Bristol, so I might have to hit you up for at least a brew or a drink or something like that. Um, but yeah, guys, go find and follow Bill. Go pester him about uh, vintage watches, and uh, I'm sure he will endeavour to get you the correct answer or help you source a watch or you know whatever your needs are. Go go find him. Um, Bill, we've reached the element of the podcast now where we're going to move on to closing notes. So as you are my guest, okay, what closing note do you have for the audience today? Yeah, so my closing note, I I, I had a good think about this one, but in re- in the end, I just came back to the book I'm currently reading, um, mm-hmm. and that is the Silk Roads: A New History of the World, um, mm-hmm. originally printed in 2015 by Peter Frankopan, mm-hmm. um, and it's just an absolutely fascinating book. It says it's a new history of the world um and the perspective from which it told is it's told is certainly new um mm. in in the kind of mainstream um i think it's a shift away from the from the western centric history where you know the west is seen to dominate from the industrial era etc um but yeah it focus, focuses on the kind of cradle of civilization in in the middle east and the, mm-hmm. the development there um and also then the development of many many different religions obviously mm-hmm. um so yeah it's just fascinating uh in from a historical perspective to to get that kind of in in-depth dive um from from a kind of perspective that you may not often be taught mm-hmm yeah, no, that sounds really interesting. Um, I've um, spent a little bit of my career in the Middle East. So for me, uh, I'll check it out. And, you know, like I said, the Silk Road as well, like the actual journey. I know a few people have done elements of the Silk Road and it's just incredible, um, you know, as the fact that, you know, A, that road existed and that was a journey that people made, you know, back before planes and cars and all that kind of stuff. Um, so it fascinates me and I like a little bit of travel. So I'll uh, I'll check it out. Guys, it'll be put into uh, the show notes as per. Um, I've got a very similar 
um, sh uh, closing note for your likeness. So um, I thought I'd mentioned it, and I actually actually had to go back through um, the podcast just to make sure that I hadn't, and I hadn't. Um, so my closing note is the TV series Race Across the Wealth. Um, so it's BBC. Uh, there's three series of it, uh, and particularly poignant for and ties in with your closing note, Bill, is season one because they effectively go through elements of what it was the Silk Road and that, you know, one of the teams or at least two of the teams end up at Samarkand, which was on the Silk Road. Um, but effectively, guys, if you've not already seen it, you've not heard of it, the proviso of the TV series is you're in teams of two and you are given the money for two single airfares from one point of the world to another point of the world. And you as a team have to get from point A to point B without taking a plane. So yeah, there you go. Uh, really interesting. And effectively, you also don't have access to modern uh, communications. So you can't take a phone. You and the only thing that they've got is a GPS for safety. And that is monitored and used by the crew. So effectively, the TV production will send them updates if there, for example, is, I don't know, civil unrest in a certain country or whatever. But effectively, you have to get through all the countries to get to the end and you win a load of money. So if you've not seen it, I encourage you to see it and it will definitely get your wanderlust travel bug on probably just in time for the good weather that we're having uh, in England now to go off and do some, uh, you know, travel or plan future travel. Um, so, yeah, go check out Race Across the World if you've not already seen it. And and final one I've got is more watch related, but sporting related is that I recently watched again because I find it fascinating, a documentary that was put up on YouTube by Amiga, it's like 40 minutes of your life. And it's all about how Amiga timed the Olympics um, and how effectively it went from mechanical po pocket watches right through to the, you know, the, the, the effectively the physical stop boards, effectively for want of a better expression, that are in the swimming pools that time all of the Olympic events. So if you don't know how we time the Olympics and you know, to the precision that that is done, uh, go check it out because I find it very interesting. And what's really good is that it's not just a nerdy conversation with people who make watches. It's also got conversations in there from previous Olympic um, medalist athletes as well who talk about it. So, yeah, go check that out. Um, Bill, thank you very much, mate, for giving up some of your time this evening to come on the podcast. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed your first podcast and I hope that it's not your last podcast and I've not scared you off. Um, but it was a pleasure to talk to you as it was the first time at Red Bar. And I look forward to either seeing you in Bristol at a Red Bar event or maybe just dropping by your showroom at some point over the summer. Uh, and if not, I'll definitely see you at future events uh, and we'll obviously continue having conversations about all things world war ii and vintage watches because invariably that side of my collecting passion needs to be um dated with someone who is also as passionate about those eras of watches yeah well don't forget the atps never <laughs> never forget about the atps but anyway guys look forward to the next episode um the next episode of zulu time podcast probably highly likely uh, will either be a collaboration episode with um, AJ Barce over at the Analog Explorer um, or it'll be a public service announcement because I won't lie to you, I've booked summer leave and I've not been on leave since Christmas. So I'm going to the Mediterranean to go enjoy some sunshine and have some time off. So the next proper episode of the podcast will probably be in September, just in time for the World Time event. So until then, have a good summer and I'll catch you later. Bye.